This is Be The Change, a summer podcast series from the Feltney Henderson Center for Social Justice at UC Berkeley School of Law. I'm Savala Chopchinsky, and I direct the Henderson Center, the social justice center at the law school. I wanted to find a way for us to stay in community over the summer and to have fun conversations with people who, in their life and in their work, are the change that we need to see in the world. My guest today is Virgie Tovar. Virgie is an author, an activist, and one of the nation's leading experts and lecturers on body image, fat discrimination, and breaking up with diet culture. She's been featured in the New York Times, Tech Insider, NPR, the San Francisco Chronicle, too many things to name, and she is here with us today. This episode deserves a little context. Virgie is not a lawyer. Clutch the pearls! So we are not going to be talking about law per se, but we are going to be talking about the practice of law and one liberating, radical way to build your capacity for long-haul social justice work. I'm not the first person to say, imagine what you could do if you took all the energy you spent on complying with normative beauty standards around body shape and size, and instead devoted that money and energy to a cause in your community or the world. That idea is out there and has been for a while, but it has major resonance for social justice advocates. In today's episode, we're going to explore how to make social justice lawyering sustainable by digging into a common denominator, dealing with the oppressive and endless project to look better, prettier, thinner, etc. We're focusing on women because that is where Virgie's work is focused, although there's room for many perspectives at this table. And I hope our conversation will shed some light onto what could happen for you or for the world if women divested energy from performing and chasing normative beauty standards in service of something greater. Virgie Tovar, welcome to Be the Change. Thank you. Really excited to have you here. I'm excited to be here. So you teach people how to experience liberation around their body image and how to break up with diet culture. What does that mean? What are people breaking up with? What is the liberation and why are they doing it? Yeah, um, well, I think of diet culture as, um, and dieting just in general, as kind of that ex-partner who's still sleeping on your sofa and they're eating everything in your <laughs> fridge and, you know, you wake up and, you know, you may, you turn on your coffee and then you go back, you take a shower, you go back and all the coffee is gone. <laughs> and I just kind of think of dieting and diet culture as like that that ex who just won't leave your house and you you know they're not adding anything to your life but you've been with them for so long that you have no idea how to get them out, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that for a lot of women and and people generally, but I work specifically with women, um, there's something very um, metaphorical about that exact analogy, right? Because this is – like dieting is um, a very patriarchal sort of set of behaviors. Essentially, it's um, the way in which the culture – it's sort of like the – like the internalization of the idea that women have to stifle – 
our desire that women have to control what our bodies look like on behalf of a greater cultural imperative. Um, and so it really is in a lot of ways like patriarchy sleeping on your sofa and taking all your stuff and then not really giving you anything. Um, and you're just they're just kind of there, you know. And so I, I use that metaphor of like breaking up with diet culture because I think it's so apt, right? Um You've invested so much. And I, th- and I think, again, the analogy of the relationship that's gone on far too long is, is really is really perfect because, you know, I think we invest and we invest and we invest and we get to a point of diminishing returns fairly quickly. Um, but we're so – it's like we can't imagine a world outside of it. Like I'll use my own self and my own life as an example – for years and years and years, I dieted. I was um, calorically restricting. I was obsessively exercising. And it was very not only physically depleting, but emotionally depleting, right? Because to me, dieting is – it really is a self-annihilatory act. Um, it's an act that annihilates desire. It annihilates instinct. It annihilates, you know, bandwidth. And, and a number of other things. Um, and and yet, I even though I hated dieting and I knew I, I, it was unpleasant, right? I, I think very few people enjoy dieting. Um, I really could not imagine my life outside of dieting. It never even occurred to me that women had the right not to control what we eat or not to attempt to control what our body looks like. That idea simply had never occurred to me. And I think this is really important, right? As like a pretty smart, self-aware person that I would never think that I had the right or the choice to opt out is, um, is evidence of just how powerful and how you know, consistently barrage we are with the idea that we have to control what our bodies look like. And I remember when someone finally told me in my mid-20s, you know, they said, did you know that you don't have to diet? It just kind of was like a break in the sky, right? It was just, I just could not, I was in my head, it was like, you are alive and therefore you diet, especially as a fat person, Tell me about one of your first memories of experiencing the need for social justice or maybe people who were trying to meet the need for social justice. Yeah. um, I mean, I'm thinking about one of the first times I stepped in in the name of of justice um, was when I was uh, 12 years old. I was in the Pentecostal church. I really, really hated the environment because um, I did not fit well with my peers. Um, I was someone who interacted better with adults, and some of that had to do with being a fat girl and just constantly being kind of, because my body was bigger, I think I always felt alien in among people my own age and I think also I was always kind of an overachiever and a teacher's pet in that way. So as a result of all of this, I ended up being the children's church teacher, which is usually kind of a role for adults, but I was 12 and I was willing to do it. So I'm working with all these four, five, six, seven, eight-year-olds, and I'm teaching them all these kinds of stories, and we do songs, and we have snacks, and it's really fun. And then it kind of gets to the point where I'm expected to teach them about hell and about 
Satan and about kind of these really intense um, repercussions for sin and whatever. And I had this moment, this kind of rub, like this dissonance inside of me that that just made me think it's not right to do this. So I just kind of individually, unilaterally decided not to teach any of the punishment side of the Bible. <laughs> Minor omission. <laughs> And I did this for something like two years in secret. And it was just wild because, you know, we'd have a really good time and um, I would give them life advice. Like, I'd be like, okay, so always wear a tie to an interview. <laughs> you know, they were like, again, they were like six, seven years old. Um, and uh, I just felt that it was deeply, deeply wrong to teach children shame and to teach children fear. Do you draw a connection between your instinct in the Pentecostal class around refusing to teach or perform mm. shame and punishment and the work you do now, which in many ways is about refusing to put on the cloak of shame or punishment around one's body? Yes, absolutely. And I think that there's, I don't know. I mean, I've always kind of been hyper attuned to the to the things in the culture that are passed off as normal that are not that people seek to render invisible and i'm really invested in in not colluding in that act of rendering things invisible especially you know violent things right um that kind of really affect the contours and the trajectory of our lives so for sure yeah so so yes especially as a fat person and i self identify as fat you identify as fat yes um would you describe what you mean by fat in terms of your own body, just so we have a sense of where you come by your your politics on this issue? Yeah, so I am a 250-pound woman, um, and I wear like a size 20, 22. So the way that kind of situates me is that um, I have, for the most part— you know, quite a bit of, of structural access. For example, I can um, sit, I can fit into most booths and, and seating at restaurants. It might be a little bit uncomfortable, but I can do it. Um, I can, you know, I can fit into seats on airplanes and things like that. So that's kind of the structural piece. Um, where my bigger struggle comes up is around the interpersonal. Um, I, I do experience um, fat phobia in an interpersonal and social sense, meaning that I've had the lifelong effects of, you know, constantly having my body policed by others. Um, I am con every time I leave my house, I'm deeply aware that someone might say something to me that's really dehumanizing and stultifying because we're just in that environment where people feel the right to um, police and speak out violently against fat women in particular. Um, so it's kind of this, it's kind of this interesting thing. I think that's an important conversation, right? Because fat phobia happens on a spectrum um, and kind of there's one end where there's, you know, really intense body dysmorphia, which is a cultural product and, and, and essentially creates a real sense of of shame around the body. Um, and then kind of on the other end, there's the structural piece, right, where um, where someone who weighs more than me might have really barred access to meaningful participation in society. And that's that's like the institutional piece. So there's so I think it's important to, to make that difference and kind of situate myself kind of in this in this middle place in some ways. The hammer definitely comes down heavily on people who have fat bar bodies. Um, but it also comes down on people who don't have fat bodies, yes. right? I mean, that's one of the 
awful, sticky, messy ironies of the body image industry Mm -hmm. and the diet industry is that it doesn't really, in some ways, matter what you look like or how much space your body takes up. Um, In your own mind, you're still hooked into the cycle, right? So, like, putting aside the structural piece and how that impacts certain bodies Mm. in particular. Is that your experience, too, working with with women that – you know, you don't have to be fat to be caught up in the dieting. Absolutely, wahala, right? Right, absolutely. And I think that that's—I um, mean—that's the point, right? I think the point of—and this is something I've been thinking about a lot this last week, where dieting and fat phobia are a lot about hierarchy. They're a lot about control, right? Like whenever there is hierarchy. There is the desire to control people's behaviors and their lives, right? And the truth is, for example, if I were to put 10 people in a room, let's say all of them were slender athletes, I would bet money that one of them would be the fattest person in the room. And they might experience that kind of microcosmic experience of fat phobia in that group, right? And I think that's that's where the toxicity comes in because the goalpost keeps moving, Right? Like you might be in one environment where your body is situated as average, and then you go to another environment and your body is situated as very large. And I think that there's something very classed about this as well. Like I think about living in San Francisco. My body is enormous. I feel like I am actively violating class laws every single time I leave my house. But what's wild is I, you know, I go 10 miles south onto the peninsula or, you know, some another a suburb and my body is much more normal not only in terms of being a brown person, but also just in terms of being a bigger person. And so it's it's kind of it's deeply disorienting to kind of go and in its in its own way it's it's like a code switching thing too, you know. Um, So yeah, absolutely. I think the point of fat phobia um, as sort of a a form of oppression is that everyone becomes subject to the reality of that oppression. Everyone is negatively affected by this because at the end of the day, um, you know, you're either somebody who is actively experiencing fat phobia and that might look like um, you know, the sense that you're constantly feeling like you have to measure up or because you're actively being stigmatized, um, you're either experiencing it or you're afraid of experiencing it. So it creates this real culture of fear around um, bodies where no one wins. So how do you step outside of something that is so pervasive? Yeah, I think that's the difficult question. And that, and that's how dieting, in my mind, turns into diet culture when it's unavoidable. And it just feels like there's so many um, mundane exchanges that happen that are so so deeply based in surveillance and policing. Like, I often ask people, can you imagine going one single day without hearing about somebody's weight loss plan or hearing about how potato chips are evil or, you know, or overhearing a conversation with your coworkers where they're trying to decide um who needs to have the smallest piece of cake right like and and these kinds of these things are are trivialized in a lot of ways but they're deeply based in surveillance um they're be, they're deeply based in in the performance of com- compliance you know um for me i feel like 
I've broken out of a prison. <laughs> and, you know, and, and I think what's hard, right, is what are we giving up? The structure, the consistent meals that a prison gives us, right? right. Um, but at the end of the day, I'm like, well, but those are, you know, those are prison meals. And they're also, <laughs> they're, that's also structure that's coming down the fascistic pipeline, right? And so, I, and, and I think there's something very important to to recognize around not playing along and the fact that there's a lot of forces that seek to keep you playing along. Um, Including other women, right? It's something that we, as with all kind of oppressive regimes, people who are oppressed enforce the regime against each other. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's, I think that, you know, and for me, it's like when women are um, sort of agents of patriarchy, when they step in on behalf of patriarchy and try to regulate Chilling phrase. <laughs> Agents of patriarchy. Yeah, no, totally. <laughs> and I mean, we're taught to be that. And I think it's really, I think it's really scary to say it. You know, it's really scary to just admit it. Um, but, you know, I remember being about 20 years old at Berkeley, learning from other feminists that that's what women were taught to do. And they rendered, again, they rendered into language a feeling that I'd been acting on for years and years and years. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, I, I kind of, I feel like I, I wish that I could think of more of these costs, but for me, it it doesn't, it feels like I, I feel like I've won some like massive lottery, except that there's no limit to like how much money's in the pot and everybody can have some. <laughs> <laughs> Dang, that's um, pretty good, yeah. Virgie. <laughs> Totally. (laughs) So the other day I was buying a cupcake (laughs) and um, I asked the woman who was working in the cupcake store, do you ever get sick of these or do you just every day come in, you know, or is it like you kind of just numb out on the cupcakes because you're Mm -hmm. on them all day? And she said, no, they still look good, but I cannot eat them because I'm trying to lose weight, not gain weight. Mm. How do you respond when you hear something like that? Is it just kind of smile and chuckle because everyone's on their journey or are you a revolutionary and so you're gonna you know try to help her get free a little bit right I mean it depends right like even though I'm kind of a a revolutionary or you know on that on that sort of path um I have to really check in with how much bandwidth I have that day so a lot of times I'll, I'll sort of um I, again, this is kind of an intuitive process where I'm like, well, um, like I might say something like, you know, um, there's nothing wrong with like all kinds of bodies are good bodies. Or um, I might say something like, um, I don't know, like I'm trying to think of the exact verbiage that I would use, but I'd probably do kind of like a cheerful sort of playful um, pushback mm-hmm. on the idea that this person needed to lose weight. Um, I'm not going to have like a full come to Jesus conversation with the cupcake person. Um, and I think what's really wild also to bringing it back to gender, um, dieting is a language of intimacy between women. And sometimes I notice women um, food police, like sort of offering these food policing sentiments as a way to kind of relate to me. And and again, I feel like it's like this horribly patriarchally mediated intimacy that we get to share because there's kind of these, you know, four to five topic areas that women can safely navigate 
with each other and, str- and strangers. And and food policing is one of those. Um, I've started to – I'm starting to perfect the art of um, quick and, and loving – um, pushback where you're know, like the other day, for example, not, not related to food, but I had met a new person and we were just walking to get coffee. And I was kind of telling her about the particular coffee shop that we went to. And I was sort of telling her about the history of the neighborhood and whatever. And, and the coffee shop in particular and the role of the neighborhood. And she said, you know, I'll tell you one thing I could have done without that woman barista wearing so little clothing. And I kind of had this moment of like, oh my gosh, right? Like there are people in the world who are still thinking this about other women. <laughs> I just was like <laughs> jarring, you know? Um, because I'm so I'm so entrenched. I'm so curatorial about who's around me and I'm surrounded by feminists. Um and I just kind of said, you know, actually, um her clothing didn't bother me. It's her right to wear what she wants. And just kind of move right move on, right? right. It doesn't have to be this enormous production. And I think a lot of times we're really um afraid. And I think again very gendered, right? We're afraid of having boundaries. We're afraid of saying no. We're afraid of kind of individuating rather than just kind of codependently just going with whatever the the messy flow might be to just have a moment where we say, no, actually, that's not my belief system. Um, I'm going to register my dissent, but we don't have to be on bad terms now as a result of this. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I love that. I'm trying to imagine if that would work, you know, in a courtroom or something or like around a conference table with right. opposing counsel because for for women, you know, there's the societal um, normative values around beauty and how we look in our yes. clothes and what looks polished and professional and all mm. of that. And for women who are lawyers or aspiring lawyers, mm. um, there's the additional layer of the sort of conservativeness of the law and the, mm. the world that we function in. And... You know, I would love to <laughs> to be able to go into a courtroom looking like myself as opposed to feeling right. that I had to costume up in this super polished way mm. um, and feeling like, you know, I I could offer a very, like, friendly retort to anyone who gave me the <laughs> side eye from across the room. Right. But it's, it's hard to yeah. buck these structures, you know, even if we bristle against them. Um, it can take a lot of trial and error and courage and and also the willingness to sometimes just not do it, just to just say, I am going to go with the flow in this particular moment and not try to dismantle capitalist patriarchy in every waking <laughs> second of yeah, my life. that's too much work. That's too much work. And I think also um, one of the things I really – encourage people to to moving forward in like the harm reduction or the empowerment conversation is to sometimes recognize when something is a hustle, right? Mm-hmm. To just kind of walk in and be like, guess what? Today's a hustle day and this is my hustle outfit and I'm going to hustle this situation to get the thing that I want because I am I have to do that in this culture where that encourages artifice, you right. know? You know, we have the right to be curatorial about that. We have the right to sort of walk into these situations situations that are not made for our success and sort of have, I think, what I call a harm reduction approach to them. Um, and and that, if What does can, that mean? Can you just unpack that? Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, I just think about there are many situations um, for me where 
I have a professional goal, right? And my thought is, okay, so let's say my goal is I want, for me personally in my work, um, I'd like to expand my platform. Um, and I'd also like to monetize it in a certain way, okay? And and for me, what does monetization mean? This goes back to sort of, this is a little bit more complicated, but for me, it's like, what's my mission statement? What do I really want to do with this money? How am I activating my income to create a life where I have the space to heal and create the life that I want to live, right? Um, and and how am I, you know, intentionally allocating and, and pulling resources? So I'll have a professional moment where my maybe my internal response is like, oh no. <laughs> But it's a very well-paid opportunity or it's it's a huge platform builder for me. And so what I'll do is I'll kind of put on my hustle hat, right? And I'll be like, okay, I'm going to go in. This is probably not going to be a hospitable environment to me. Like corporate environments are not hospitable to people of color, to women, to fat people, period. And we know this um, because corporate environments are about creating homogeneity. So when I kind of go in and I'm thinking, okay – um, I don't like this very much, but here's how I'm going to get the thing that I want so that I can create the life that I want. And I'm very intentional about how that resource is getting allocated and put back. And so with that harm reduction model, right, I can go in and be intentional. What are my boundaries? Um, when I go into the meeting, how much am I going to speak to other people? How much physical contact am I going to allow, right? So what I'll do is, in the you know, if there's a meeting, for example, I will arrive, say hello, um, keep, you know, three feet of distance or whatever, and then I'll sit down and kind of get on my laptop until the meeting begins because maybe I don't want to network with these folks because they're going to say some weird things to me. Um, and that's just, that's just an example, but kind of when you go in um, with with an un, with a grounded understanding of why you're there, it equips you to kind of navigate these um, potentially really intimidating and sometimes deeply frustrating and negative experiences. I'm wondering if if you attribute your ability to know and hold your boundaries and to respect your boundaries and your instincts about your boundaries to dropping out of diet culture, to getting off the treadmill, so to speak. Yeah, in a lot of ways. Like, essentially, not dieting has been an enormous part of following my intuition. And I think a lot of it, I mean, I I feel like, I mean, essentially, when we do work that really matters to us, we are working from the heart. We are working from the gut. And the metaphorical gut, right? And then dieting is seeking to is seeking to annihilate the gut, the mm. physical gut, and I think also the metaphorical gut, right? Because, um, like I was saying earlier, hunger is a sacred, ancient instinct in the same way that intuition is, and it's wild, right? Because like um, women throughout history for hundreds of years. Our practices of intuition building have been destroyed one after another, um, and. And dieting, in my mind, is part of that active destruction. So so the idea is, right, for me, I think about um, when I was dieting, right, um, not only was all my emotional energy caught up in food control and, and body stuff, um, I also had a very hard time accessing that sense of intuition, right? Because And, and we need to recognize dieting as this really – like in my mind, dieting is a manifestation of distress. Dieting is um, anger that women 
do have and should have towards patriarchy turned inward. And that's what shame is. Shame is anger turned inward. Um, and, and again, all of these things create a very inhospitable environment to the proliferation of intuition. And, and, it, and, and it makes sense to me that for me, and I think for a lot of people, as we would release that destructive behavior, that these other more um, sort of self-love-based and and restorative mm-hmm. behaviors and practices would have room to flourish. Yeah, it's not a zero-sum game, human mm-hmm. potential and human capacity, yes. right? Yet at the same time, I mean, man, if I if I could have back every dollar or moment <laughs> yes. that I I spent perseverating about how to conform to mm-hmm. Western modern beauty ideals, I mean, oh my God, like I could be the dean of Berkeley Law, like, <laughs> I, yes. I, you know. So there's um, this has a, a there's a mystical benefit, but there's a super practical benefit too, in the sense that. Um, there's only so many practices that we can cultivate really well at a time. Mm. And if one of those practices is the endless pursuit of a better body, mm. it's a huge time suck, is it not? Yeah, absolutely. And I think like w- women are capable of thriving in ex- extremely inhospitable environments. I mean, I think of our culture right now as exceedingly <laughs> inhospitable to women, exceedingly. And if we just took a moment to allow ourselves to recognize how inhospitable and and how we've managed to get up every day, put our clothes on, you know, make our, make our straight, like flat iron our bangs, put on some lipstick, (laughs) um, you know, and in the midst of all of this, that is exceptional. For me, my, my thought is we don't, you know, we don't have to do it. So one of the pitches that I am totally upfront about trying to make is that women who give up diet culture and who's, who divest from the body image industrial complex <laughs> have more energy and resources in their life. And in this particular podcast, the case I'm trying to make is that women who want to do social justice work mm. – you know, in particular benefit from that because of how trying and, and intense social justice lawyering is. Mm. So let me ask you, what kind of resources have you gained from losing the hate, as you say, <laughs> and um, stepping out of the cycle? Yeah, I mean, I think um, sort of an infinite number of resources, uh, primarily among them, dignity, um, and and I, I want to – I feel like there's this incredibly powerful quote by a sociologist named Sander Gilman. Um, and he says in one of his books, dieting is a process by which the individual claims control over her body and thus shows her ability to understand her role. And Ooh. I know. I remember the first time I read it and I just kind of – I mean I almost fell off my chair. Right. Yeah. Well, you should. I'm like f- almost You're, falling. You almost fell off your, yeah, you did. Um, and I just remember reading it over and over and over again. And he kind of almost like flippantly mentions it in the introduction to one of his books. Um, but you know, and and it was it was through that it was through his crystallization of of this idea that I really began to understand the dieting was. An investment in the culture and a divestment from myself, and that each time, each 
skipped meal, each thought spent obsessing about how to be thin, um, was me sort of taking, um, you know, something away from myself and giving giving it away to a culture that was not invested in my success. What about beauty? What about mm. someone who doesn't really think of themselves as fat or thin or dieting? But right. obviously we all want to be beautiful, whatever that means. Mm. Where does beauty fit into this wahala of... <laughs> Capitalism and patriarchy and dignity and self-respect and giving yourself away one little bit at a time. Right. I mean, I've started to have um, – I don't know if this is exactly what you're asking me, but I'm going to offer my um, my philosophy on beauty. Um, and, and I kind of um, – I wrote a piece about this um, called Ugliness is a Myth. And um, and I was kind of one, – one of the most sort of magical, restorative things that happened to me when I stopped dieting was that um, I began to recall um, the time before I learned fat phobia when I was a child. Those memories were suppressed because of diet culture. I could not – I my brain could not hold that there had been a time before I learned fat phobia and, and, and dieting behavior. They just weren't compatible. So my brain just kind of shut that side of me down and – or th- those memories down. And I remembered, you know um, – how much I loved my body, how deeply curious I was, how, you know, every day when we got home, I would take off all my clothes and I would run down the hallway and I would stop in front of the kitchen where my grandmother was always cooking and I would jiggle, you know, <laughs> and it was like, and I remember, and, and the, the feeling of like delight and pleasure from the jiggling was so intense that it actually created this like imprint in my mind. Like I can still access the intensity of the pleasure even right now as I'm sitting with you. Um, And, you know, then I was introduced to fat phobia um, and all that kind of went away, that curiosity, that delight, that pleasure. But I think it's important to remember that, you know, when we're born into this world, we're capable of seeing beauty in all things and in all people. Um, Everything is wondrous and incredible, right? Like a tree. I mean, if you look at a child, right, the way that they look at a leaf or a tree, it's just, I mean, that sense of overwhelm, like overwhelming wonder that they have towards all of these different things and how nothing is prioritized over another thing. Um, and and I think it's unfortunate that through cultural education and the, and the rewards and punishments that the culture sort of meets out, um, our field of vision becomes narrower and narrower and narrower until, and I kind of use the metaphor of like, we're looking at a masterpiece through a peephole. Um, and, and for me, I've just come to really realize and push back against against that and and I've really begun to sort of recognize that beauty is not something that women earn it's something that people are so let me ask you about race and the intersection of race yes. in your your process um do you think it's made it easier or or more difficult to get free so to speak um as a woman of color and I asked because on the one hand you're not white so you'll never be white. You're right. never going to look like, you know, anyone on the cast of Friends. And there's, <laughs> uh, it's true. There's yeah, a certain yeah. liberation in that, right? Yes. Like, I will never achieve that. And there's also something that can be very demoralizing. Like, no matter what you do, you're never going to be that white beauty. So mm. how, how has that played out for you? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I will say, I think as a woman of color, it's been easier to get free. 
um, because uh, sort of I think that in a lot of ways, I think that I was aware, made aware of my body before I was racialized because I grew up in a primarily community of color, uh, mostly immigrant kids and, and, you know, their parents, our parents were immigrants. Um, But I will say that before I was radicalized around body, I was radicalized around race. And again, it, it was a very intuitive process in the sense that I I knew something wasn't right. And, you know, I went to college and um, I started undergrad at UC Davis. And it was the first time that I was in a majority white space. And it was, it felt deeply emotionally inhospitable and sort of hostile and, and alien to me. Um, and I couldn't understand what it was. Again, I didn't even have a racial identity until I was introduced to whiteness, which I think is very common um, mm-hmm. for people of color. And it's 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 so ironic, isn't it? How there how there's like this there's total there's this obsession on behalf of white supremacy to suppress racialization, but it's white supremacy that creates racialization. This is the great irony and, and the crazy making. This is kind of like the gaslighting that the, <laughs> like the culture does. Um, anywho, so I kind of sought. I have this. This, this inclination that maybe it was racial. Um, and so I started to seek out like critical race theory um, resources and things like that. And so, and I'll admit it, it was, it was that, it was that kind of static, that tension in the air that felt um, that I could feel that tuned me in to other things that were going on with the culture. Um, and so I think it was, I think it was very, very powerful for me to have like a critical race theory language and framework going into anti-dieting work mm-hmm. um, because I already knew something wasn't right. Something wasn't right on a different front than my body, you know. Um, and so in that way, I kind of um, began to see myself as uh, sort of on the periphery before and and I and I think what's interesting it wasn't until I was introduced to feminism that that periphery became a celebratory place and um, because I was introduced to a very specific brand of queer feminism where that was deeply resilient that was deeply campy and I'm so I'm so campy um, <laughs> You know, and I think that there was this, there was this kind of permission granted around um, this almost like pr- very provocative um, expression of gender and anti-assimilation and, and our politics, right? And and really, it was almost like walking out of. Um, the coffee that follows a business meeting into a full-on underground party. (laughs) (laughs) And I think it was my sensitization as, like, a racialized woman to the idea that there were these really rad underground parties that made it much less difficult for me to just go deeper into that party. So for listeners who want to come to this party, (laughs) or hosts who want to come to this party, yes, um, yes. What are what are the first few steps for somebody whose imagination has been captured and wants to play with this idea of creating a little more space in their life for the pursuit of something greater by stopping to invest so heavily in body image culture and diet culture? How do they start? My first um, sort of piece of advice is actually to 
audit, right? Like, and I know that sounds so boring, but one of the first things I have. It does sound a little boring, Virgie. I can't lie. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, you know, you kind of go in and I think that. The, the practice of intention is so important, and auditing is 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 a practice of intention, right? And then the concept is one of the first things I do when I work with people. I have a program called Babe Camp. One of the first exercises we do, the activities we do, is I have them for two days audit the people – input, resources, whatever, who make them feel really badly about themselves. Um, and we kind of go in and – I asked them, what time of day? What was it? Was it a conversation with a particular person? Was it a magazine you have a subscription to? Is it a show that you watch? Um, Is it like a moment in the day when you just have, you know, like the first thing in the morning when you look in the mirror or whatever? What are the moments that create the the difficult feelings inside of you? And to just kind of – and even that, the auditing process is a space-creating process. It's literally giving yourself the time to reflect on what – happening? What input are you letting in? Um, And then taking a little bit of time to go in and ask yourself, what is the low-hanging fruit I can get rid of? If I know that this show always makes me feel really badly, you just need to stop watching that show. If it's a magazine, just cancel the subscription, right? Um, You know, and and then kind of, and then we get into the second level where let's say it's people, like our family members or even our partner – who are creating these really difficult feelings, we begin to um, begin to divest from them. So I often tell people to be very – it's very methodical, right? Like if you, if you sort of find there's a person in your life who's consistently making you feel a certain way, you um, divest – 50% of the energy you've spent on them. But I'm, I'm going to interrupt just to yeah, ask. Go. I mean, there's some people in our lives we cannot phase out. It's true. To say nothing of our own inner yes. voice. Yes, absolutely. So what do you do with, with that? Yeah, um, I find that in interactions, even when we don't feel like we can sort of fully phase out that person, there are often little spaces where we can kind of pull back, you know? And I think what's important is, and this goes back to something I was saying earlier, maybe in the meeting, right, we have to have a meeting with this person every single day or every single week and there's no way out of it because they're our boss or our coworker or whatever. Maybe that looks like you know, not offering stuff when there's time, when it, there's time to converse. Maybe it looks like not having as much physical contact with a person. Often there's little things that you can kind of pull back on and modulate. And, um, and it's hard, right? A lot of times, um, women work in, because of sexism, um, heavily, you know, female dominated industries where their entire office is filled with women who are all on a diet. Um, and again, this goes back to like the intimacy and the team building weirdness, the patriarchal sort of mediated intimacy. Um, um, and a lot of times what we'll do together is we'll come up with grounding exercises for them. So maybe before work, they're going to take five minutes to do this like self-care thing or they're going to take five minutes of silence. Um, or, I mean, for me, I'm kind of like, woo, you know, so I'm like, maybe you need a touchstone. Maybe you need like a stone that symbolizes this kind of energy or whatever. And you kind of like have it on your desk, right? Or it's it's in your, you know, it's in your drawer and you kind of know that you have this thing. And that touchstone might be a stone. It might be a book. It might be, I mean, we all have all kinds of things, but just kind of something that reminds you, yes, I'm in a hostile environment. And also this is not going to last forever. And also I have um, the right to take a second to pull back from this and to be grounded. One thing that's really important to me is to allow yourself to be angry. 
anger is a really sacred practice, and I think it's 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 a deeply um for women. Anger is one of the the least feminine of the of, be, of behaviors that we can do, and so there's a big taboo around anger. And this goes back to the idea that, like, oftentimes we will um, metabolize anger and we'll turn it into shame, and that's just internally um, internally directed anger. And I think it's really important for women to actually be able to feel anger um, and express anger, you know, and I think you have to be, unfortunately, again, you have to be strategic about what that looks like. Mm -hmm. Um, But I really think I really want to encourage women not to stifle that anger, even if it's something that you know you're not you're not going to be able to go off on the person who's the target of the anger, who's the inspiration for the anger, that might not be something you can do professionally or personally or whatever. Um, but to not allow that anger to fester into something that becomes self-destructive. So I really want to encourage uh, women to remember that. Um, part of the restoration of our full humanity as women, which we all deserve, is that we experience the spectrum of human emotion that involves anger and sadness and grief. Um, things that in our culture are scripted as deeply unfeminine, right? Because like our role in society is to put a smile on it and caretake everybody, right? Make you a sandwich, wipe your nose, and keep everything light, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> sort of, and, and I, I, I want to encourage women to push back against that expectation because it's deeply dehumanizing. It's deeply depleting. Um, it's gendered labor that gets invisibilized through um, sexism, essentially. So to kind of recognize, like, how much work you're doing and to and to recognize, you know, is the behavior I am investing in um, something that is restoring my humanity or something that is depleting my humanity? Be curatorial. Give yourself permission to be intentional. Give yourself permission to pursue things that nourish you and and to recognize and if you can step away from things that um, that deplete you. Virgie, this has been <laughs> radical Yay. in every sense of the word. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yes, thank you for having me. It's been great. That was Virgie Tovar. You've been listening to Be The Change. I'm Savala Treptinsky, and I hope you stay tuned. We've got more conversations coming with social justice thinkers and doers. 